church and other drugs. My name is Jed. My name is Debesh. Welcome. Welcome. Merry Christmas. Hey, hey, Debesh. Merry Christmas. Merry Fishmas. Merry Fishmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. I hope you're holding your loved ones close and (laughs) having a cognac or a sparkling cider, depending on your sobriety leanings. Or a banana cognac blunt. A banana cognac blunt. I hope Santa brought you, uh, you know, iPods or uh, Furbies or whatever is the new the new thing this year. Whatever the whatever the kids are doing. this Do you year. remember uh, that toy Aqua Dots that came out, and then they had to emergency recall it because they found out that it turned into GHB when you put it in water. <laughs> What? And all these junkies went to Toys R Us and fucking bought them out. Isn't that hilarious, dude? Yeah. It was amazing. It was like a 1-4 butanediol, I think it was, which is like a, it turns to, it's GBL, and then once you ingested your body turns it into ghb so like it was hilarious just i i was too late i went to toys r us and they'd already recalled it and i was like you guys sell aqua dots <laughs> and they were like no <laughs> get um, out of here security basically dude so uh how addicted to your phone are you because i'm just realizing like i think uh, my, i think my life is like fucked up by it like i'm just all my li- yeah, I'm very addicted to my phone. It's, I um, it's so bad, dude. It's really like, bad. I think reality is getting like weird because it's like all, oh, I come home, I'm on my phone, like, I don't like. I've almost forgotten like what else should I be doing. Right. Right. Like. Yeah. It's um. I mean, I. It's yeah. You know, you just get constant checking and like. Just like, you know, just having that right there next to you, it's just so hard to engage, like, fully in reality. I mean, and then when everybody else is doing it, too, it's It makes like, it even harder. It makes it even harder. And, like, is this the reality? Is this now reality? You know? And, like, I mean, there's, like, it's just interesting in, like, cognitive science. They talk about, like, how we're already part cyborg because yeah. um, of what we have in our pocket. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like like parts of the brain that, that I'm supposed to use. like that's gone. I don't use that at all, you know. The um you cut out for a second. Which part of the brain? Uh like the parts of the brain that like that are used for like like I guess like navigation and memory. like like memory and kind of like special spatial awareness and kind of like having a sense of like direction and stuff like all of that is like for me, at least, it's not it's not used. No, yeah, it it yeah. really sucks. I don't know what to do about it. Well, I guess I, I don't right. know. I don't really know what to do. I thought this job would was gonna be my cure, and I've just, mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just on it at work. So yeah, like yeah. and everybody else at work is too though. Like I I love that it's it, you know it used to be like your boss would be like get off your phone. But now right. your fucking boss is on your phone, on his phone. So like everyone <laughs> yeah. is just co-signing everybody. 
It's yeah. like, I'm not going to tell you to get your off it. Your boss is like, get off your phone. It's like, no, you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like, your boss texts you. Get off your phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to fuck? text sponsees that in meetings. I'm like, yeah. get off your phone. <laughs> oh, I was the king of, like, telling my sponsees to get off my their phone. But, like, I would be on my phone. Because, like, like, I'm sober. So, like, I know what I'm right. doing, son. Right. Right. Jeez, dude. That's bad. Oh, man. It's really That's bad. So bad. So but I, th- I feel like I've been talking about this for a long time. I know con- the congregation have heard me talk about this for a long time. So I don't know, so, man. I guess I got to do something. Somebody needs to write a book. I'm sure there's one out there already, but like like a research based kind of. I mean, like they're like they're doing some research on it right now. So hopefully yeah. some sort of something will. I don't know. It's like. Just turn it off, but it's like that's yeah, so. Yeah, I just you can't any. I don't know. Maybe you can. Yeah, it's just so difficult. Um, so I've been a. Is Twitter even good for fucking anything besides like <laughs> it really has anything good happen from Twitter? Answer me that. <laughs> no, I, mean, I don't. No, think I don't. So. I don't use it. I don't. Use I don't it. either. I mean, but I, I mean, okay, okay. I'll tell you one good thing that happened from Twitter. Um, Hannibal Buress. I was at a bar in New Orleans like around last year and he came down the street to this like local comedy club and he just tweeted it out. Okay. All right. And, like, and okay. Showed up. Fair enough. Fair the, enough. Yeah. Th- that was about it though. Yeah. Well, here, this is just my, my most recent musing on internet social justice. Well, I guess social justice warriors in general. Cause I was like, why does I keep trying to figure out like, why does this shit bother me so much? And I was like, okay, this is this. This is just something I'm toying around with. I don't know if it's the reason. I feel like these people have no experience to back up their opinions. Whereas, and this sounds arrogant, but it's just fucking facts. Like, me and mm. you, mm-hmm. the the drug world is a completely different reality where, like, there's really no... I mean, there's no, not racism, like, talking about, because we're... Mm-hmm. There's nobody the gives a boat, sh- We're on the same yeah, nobody, fucking boat. Yeah, nobody cares yeah, about nobody your cares. gender, your sex, your persuasion, yeah. your race. Nobody <laughs> gives a shit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We don't talk about that shit. No. Yeah. And so we've all been living in this like dystopian harmony together. Right. And then I come out right. of it into this the, world wow. where people this are. the world? Yeah. And they're fucking flipping out about shit they just don't even know. They have no life experience yeah. to back up what they're so mad about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of it is like just like this white guilt and shit. And like, and then like, there's this piece like, <clears throat> it's, I, I forgot where I was going with this, but it, I don't know. It's, it's like, a, it's, it's, I'm triggered. Um, I, right. I'm triggered by this BS. I mean, like, especially in little like microcosms, like you know Portland and different areas, people just they don't they don't understand, and they want to like speak up for this for this population, right. and this people. It's like you know, like nobody asked you, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, and then it's it's almost always patronizing. It like, really is. Do this for you because you're too weak to do it yourself. You know, like I think ultimately, like yes, of course, there's all this messed up stuff going on, but like I think the side, you know, of like minorities, I think just want people to realize, like, 
the the scales are not equal just realize that you know what i right. mean like like i'm like i don't i don't know from there you know maybe some stuff could happen but like don't you know nobody has to advocate for you know this group that group and like and you no, know before. and especially when when there's certain things about it that no one really wants to do anything about you want to see how slavery still man, I mean, this might be i guess maybe whatever i'm just Slavery still exists. Mm -hmm. Go look at how many fucking white people are mopping floors, uh, mm -hmm. working fast food restaurants, mm -hmm. uh, garbage men, mm -hmm. janitors, like mm -hmm. the, the backbones of fucking society. But the work, you know, fucking white folks don't really feel like doing. Or if they do, it's because they're felons or... Right. I, like when I did, it, I was coming out of rehab. Like I'm not saying white people don't do these things, but I'm saying it is way skewed in the other direction. But yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. The people, I feel like the people like crying foul on everything is this, that, or the other. Like they don't, you know. Like, do you want to go work at McDonald's? <laughs> right, right. You know, you know. Are, how much are you really like? How much? How much do you really care? Stuff, you know. Oh, take all. Oh, are you gonna take you know such and such into your home? Right. You know what I'm saying. So Hold you're them and feed them. You're you against know? abortions, like so. You're gonna take care of this baby. All right. Like which, right. I, and I'm, I'm. That's what I think. You know, like the Christian argument is: if you're gonna be pro-life, then you better be anti-death penalty. You better be prepared to take care of uh, babies and mm. the mothers. If you're going to tell them that they need to keep them, then you need to be prepared to a system, not just morally degrade society. I don't know why I'm so heated right now. Well, it's such it's it's this it's uh, any argument based on morality is is fucking it's bullshit because we have levels of immorality in every single person. You know, God is the only perfect being, you know, so it's just like it's just so hard it's, to sit here and point out faults in other people. Well, we have so much. I have so much work to do right I think, here. I think that's why, you know. And obviously, I'm just throwing out statements with no evidence to back it up. But I think this is my opinion that mm. that's why a lot of people will do this on Twitter and, and like, um, fucking posture and stuff is because it's a real good way to not talk about me. Yeah, totally. No, it's a it's, great it, way it works, to not it works talk about very me. Very well, you know what I mean. And 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 uh, the scapegoating. And all this, you know, yeah, scapegoating, you know, black people in the 30s. Now I'm scapegoating, you know, you know, white people that treat these people poorly, I think, you know. And it's just like, you know, as long as somebody else is the problem, you know, there's no self-work. There's no, yes. you know, spiritual harmony. There's no um, advancing to the next stage of human development, in my opinion. Well, and I... Uh, it and then the, the the other laughable thing to me is the atheists that will take a moral stance, to which I reply, what's your baseline of morals here? Like, how right. do you have any right to say your moral high ground is any better than anybody else's? Like, what's the baseline here? Where's that coming yeah. from? Huh? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Fucking doorknob or fucking <laughs> your flying spaghetti monster? Is that who made up? Like, fuck you, man. What? I'm real. Yeah. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. <sighs> I, you know, it's been a long day at work. So, all right, we'll, we'll let's get to this interview and.
Good. Ready to rock and roll. Uh, well, I'm Jed. Good to meet you in the, in the digital person. Yes, indeed. Where you're in uh, California? Is that right? Yes, I'm in Los Angeles. Uh huh. The land of Hollywood, huh? Are yeah. you uh, are you safe it, from the I, fires? I, yeah, totally. That's like an hour north of me. Oh, okay. Are we actually? Is this the program? Are we on? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just rolling. Okay. If you're if you're good with that, I can go back. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> no problem. So you're good from the fires? Yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing ever really happens too much in this city. <laughs> you know, we're pretty protected from most of that kind of stuff. So. Cool. Not a problem at all. But I do have friends who have been affected by it, so that's yeah. a bummer. That's all the news we get. I'm in Louisiana and that's uh we just had snow for the first time in I don't know, like a decade. So that was Wow. Must be global here. warming. For real. Yeah. All the, <laughs> causing all the, the new ice age. Yeah. Global warming causing the ice age. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you because I'm. I heard you on um, with Derek on Truth Seeker, and uh, the you you hit just every single button that I like. Um, super interested in uh, <coughs> I'm like an amateur Nephilim researcher, I guess I'll call it. And um, so I kind of want to talk about that, but first I think I want to talk about uh preterism because I, I we just talked about um I just did a episode on on the bible and we kind of briefly touched on revelation and i've only recently had the like mind-blowing thing of like okay so maybe revelation already happened or at least half of it or whatever yeah most of it yeah can you break that down Uh, give like a uh a for dummies version yeah yeah sure um sit back because i'm a talker hey there we go um well so basically, um, I, what you're referring to is my most recent novels and books that I've written are on the subject and I'm in the midst of, um, I've just, a couple months ago, I released the second book of my series, novel series called Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And, um, what it is, it's, it's this, it's the story of what happens, what happened in the first century when the apostle John was writing the book of Revelation. So, so whereas most most people who write novels about Revelation, they try to write futuristic novels like Left Behind, you know, and say, yeah. oh, this is what the Antichrist is, and this is what the tribulation is, and here's what it's going to look like in our future. So they're all speculative of our future, and nobody's really written about when John wrote the book. So I wanted to tell that story, but I also happen to believe that um, John was writing to to his to people of his generation, and a lot of the meaning of Revelation has to do with understanding it through their eyes in their world and how it applied to their world, not necessarily to ours. That's the that's the surprising shock that most people assume, oh, it's all about the distant future, uh, but actually I believe it wasn't. And so I knew that that's a shocking proposition. So I, I also wrote a theological book to sort of back it up called End Times Bible Prophecy. And in that book, I sort of give a theological introduction to the notion of the, um, the poetry of, of Old Testament Bible prophecy and New Testament Bible prophecy. In other words, you have to understand prophecy through a poetic lens. 
Uh, it's rooted in that all throughout both testaments. And you have to familiarize yourself with their context of how they wrote their language and poetry. And when you do, you come up with a very different picture and understanding of uh, the prophecies of the last days and the end times in the New Testament. Then I, I walk. Does that oh, go fit ahead. in with a, are you an inerrantist? Yeah, I, I mean, it depends on how you define inerrantist. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess. So I mean, you're, I'm, not, I'm not, you're not a literalist. Yeah, I'm not a, a, a hyper literalist. Yeah, um, okay. I definitely believe that I believe that God's uh, the Bible is God's word. It's it's God inspired, breathed, God breathed. Uh, do I believe it's scientifically accurate and and according to the way we write history? No, I don't. And I think that there's a lot of hyperbole. Uh, and they knew it was hyperbole, a lot of poet, poetic expressions, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, things like that, that we, that a modern person might say, well, that can't be because that would make the Bible lying. And no, I don't think hyperbole means you're lying. I think you're yeah. making a very spiritual point. So yeah, so I have a high view of scripture in that sense, but I, I don't necessarily agree with uh, some of the way modern evangelicals might define it, right? Sure. But, ne but nevertheless, um, so, so my goal was, you know, I wanted to tell the story of the first century because this is this fascinating time period where uh, from the time right after the book of Acts until the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in AD 70, this is a time period that most Christians don't know anything about because the book of Acts ends and then that's it, right? And then they jump to the Reformation and, you know, Catholic Church and all this kind of stuff. What's, what's the time period that Acts the, ends? The Acts ends around, I think— around in the 50s, something like that, Okay. Um, or maybe the 40s, okay? And um, so, you know, there's about a 30-year time period then that, that, that we don't know anything about, except there is one document, an exhaustive description of the wars, the revolt of the Jews that occurred in that time period, written by a famous historian, uh, with the name of by the name of Josephus, Flavius Josephus. And he was a participant in the wars. And what happened was after the great fire of Rome, where two thirds of Rome was destroyed, uh, most of the most of the people, and I tell this story in the first novel called Tyrant, Rise of the Beast. Well, anyway, most of the uh, Roman people started to wonder if if Nero, who was the emperor at the time and around 64 AD, that he had deliberately done that so that he could rebuild Rome in his own image. Well, if that, if they, if they concluded that the mob would have ended up lynching Nero. So Nero had to find a scapegoat and he looked around and there, and, um, uh, I think actually several Jews in his life, his wife, Popea, the Empress was either a Jew or very friendly with the Jews. He had a favorite, uh, mime who was a Jew. He, uh, Nero liked artists. <laughs> Don't we all? So. Yeah, so having a favorite mime isn't some, you know, it was very important to him, you know. And also Josephus himself was there during the Great Fire. And what I think may have, there's indicate, there's hints at what may have happened that the Jews at his ears uh, suggested that he blame it on the Christians because the Christians were always talking about this flaming judgment of fire. And so uh. consequently, Nero then used that as justification and that would launch the Neuronic persecution from which we get all these, you know, things about Christians being thrown to the lions, right? And Christians being uh, hung on poles and covered in pitch and lit on fire as torches for Nero's delight, right? And that's There's all just these, historical... That's all historical stuff that we know about. 
Well, that's what that was that that was the Great Tribulation, basically. And and that began sometime after 64 AD. And so I wanted to tell that story, uh, you know, which also include the martyrdom of Paul and Peter, who both were martyred in Rome. And this is the great persecution that was going on. So I wanted to tell that story in Tyrant Rise of the Beast and sort of give a feeling for really the monstrous nature of Nero, because ultimately I believe he is the beast of Revelation. Now, I can explain that in a minute, but um, this is really important. And it also uh, it also is the beginning of the Jewish war. So around AD 67, actually, the Jews started rising up against Rome and you had the Jewish leadership in Rome were very pro-Roman. And they, they're like, you know, calm down, let's just obey Rome, right? And, and it was protecting their own power base. But there were a lot of revolutionaries, uh, militant uh, 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 desperados in the wilderness, right, who are raising up their own armies. And the zealots who were like, you know, uh, no God but Yahweh and such. And so this created a revolution, actually. And it, it caused Nero to send his Roman armies, four columns of them, four legions, uh, and some other uh, allies in the area over to Israel to wipe out Israel and destroy the city. Now, that's 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 what happened by AD 70. And that's the story I want to tell, because I believe it does fit in with Revelation. But I knew and, you know, and I knew people are going to be freaked out by this. Like, what are you talking about? We've always been told, you know, by uh from Hal Lindsey to John Hagee to whoever that this stuff is in our future, right? And so I knew many Christians would be shocked by it. So I wanted to sort of uh, tell the story in a dramatic fashion so that it puts flesh on the bones of the theology it, that will make sense in a way that they might not be able to get into the theology of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And it's more yeah. entertaining. You know, so I show this, I show everything that's happening through the eyes of a Roman, a Jew and a Christian. And, um, you know, as they, as they enter into this journey and in, in Tyrant, Rise of the Beast, the, one of the main guys is this Roman warrior who is given the task by Nero to track down this mysterious letter that's been secretly passed around the empire that supposedly talks about assassination of the emperor as well as the end of the world. And it was this some kind of secret army that they're going to rise up, right? So, and it turns out that that letter is the, the letter of revelation that the apostle John wrote. And so these guys are trying to find it and, you know, um, and that's kind of what Tyrant Rise of the Beast is. And then the ne next novel is Remnant, Rescue of the Elect. And in that, in that book, uh, you know, our heroes basically find the letter of John and realize it's written by John. They didn't know it at first. And then they go to the island of Patmos and he kind of explains to them what it is. And they realize that this isn't uh, a, a secret letter of judgment against Rome. It's actually a letter of judgment against Israel. Why? For killing their own Messiah as well as all the prophets. In other words, the ultimate, the ultimate um, fulfiller of all prophecy, the th that which the entire law and prophets looked forward to was who? Messiah. And if they killed the, you know, as Jesus said, you know, you killed the Messiah, I'm going to come back and destroy your, destroy the temple, right? That was Matthew 24. So there's that element of it. Um, and also, secondly, 
you know, if you think about it, when Jesus Christ died and rose again, that was the inauguration of the new covenant, which meant the old covenant is dead. It's abolished, right? It's gone. Um, there's no more need for sacrifices. There's no more need. Everything rooted in the temple was done away with. So like but the, the, the thousand year reign. Uh, no, that, that that's a little bit later, but I, I'm just telling you the basic history oh, okay. and the basic theology, not necessarily the end times thing. So, um, so the, uh, the, the temple uh, was the incarnation of the old covenant, right? Right. And my premise is that the book of Revelation is a prophecy of judgment upon Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, not the true believers in Israel, but the, 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 um, you know, what, what shall we say? The apostate nation of Israel that, that rejected Messiah. It's judgment on them, uh, for rejecting and killing Messiah. And secondly, it's the final historical validation of the destruction of the old covenant. Why, how? In the destruction of the incarnation of the old covenant, the temple without a temple, you can't have sacrifices, right? The law, all of that is is irrelevant because it's all destroyed. And so my point here is that that's what God was doing. He was he was destroying that temple to to. And what's interesting, isn't it, that it's never been able to be rebuilt since. Um, and so the point here is that God is validating in history what He already inaugurated with the death of Christ, the destruction of the old covenant and the old, mm -hmm. yeah, the Torah and all that. So that's sort of the meaning and purpose of all. So in this time period between AD 30 and AD 70 is a transition period. The old, the new covenant is, so to speak, um, fading out and the old covenant is fading in. What are you, what are you talking about? What transition? That sounds shocking, doesn't it? Well, actually this is rooted in the Bible itself. And let me find you this example when, as soon as my, my Bible passage here comes up. In the book of Hebrews, we get this very picture of a reference to the, um, you know, of course, if you've read Hebrews, you know, you, you know that, that it talks all about the, uh, the old covenant and its temple was a shadow, right? a shadow of the real temple in heaven. And the real sacrifice was Christ on the cross of which the earthly priesthood and sacrifices was a mere shadow, right? So he's saying once the Messiah has come, the true substance has come. And this is all explained in, of course now, you know, everything's moving really slow. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite places in Hebrews, he's taught in Hebrews 8, He's talking about how the old covenant is done and the new covenant takes over. And this was prophesied in Jeremiah, right? So in Hebrews 8, verse 13, at the end, he says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, right? The old covenant is obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Wait a minute, I thought he said it was obsolete, but now it says it's becoming, it's growing old, it's about ready to vanish away, but it hasn't. What does that mean? He's talking of the temple. The physical temple was still there, and even though the old covenant was obsolete, there was a sense of transition. Until the temple was destroyed, it wasn't fully vanished away. It was only becoming obsolete. And then a few verses later in uh, Hebrews 9, verse 8, he says this, 
He explains, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the heavenly holy place, you know how the temple had had the holy place and then the most holy place? Mm-hmm. The, the Spirit indicates the way into the heavenly holy places is not opened as long as the first holy place is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So he's saying very clearly here that the physical temple is a symbol of the present age, which is the old covenant age that would be done away with, with the arrival and consummation of the new covenant age. Um, And so in other words, he's saying that that physical holy place has to be destroyed for God to fully, you know, open up that heavenly holy place. Um, so there's a theological thing here going on that I think it's very uh, it's it's very important for un- for us to understand because my argument is this: when when we hear about the end of the age and the last days, everyone thinks it's the last days of the earth. Mm-hmm. It's the end of the age is the end of time, but that's not what it meant to them. The end of the age to them meant the end of the Mosaic age. The last days were not the last days of the earth. It was the last days of the old covenant. And this is very clear because throughout um, throughout you know the New Testament, we have many places where um, you know the uh, the writers say that we are in the last days. You know, in fact, in, in yeah. the book of Hebrews, chapter one, verse one, it says. God spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the first century was the last days. So how could that be? It's the last days of the old covenant because the you know, book of Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed, right? So, and there's many other passages. Hebrews 9.26 says, Now once at the consummation of the ages... Jesus has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the sacrifice of Christ was done at the consummation of the ages. What? The consummation of the old age because the Messiah would bring in the new age. And so this is this is how they understood the last days, not the way we understand it. And that's the that's hmm. one of the basic premises of the whole series Chronicles of the Apocalypse. Um, so I want to tell, well, I, but again, I realize Christians hear this and they go, that, what? How can that possibly be? It it makes it almost feel like it takes away everything they've hoped for and looked for. Um, and so it's a shocking thing. So what I did was I, I did heavy historic and biblical research and I footnoted all my novels of Chronicles of the Apocalypse because I knew that Christians would read this and it would be so new to them and they would tend to not believe it. So uh, while you're reading my book, and I didn't just cite sources, I actually cut whole arguments of scholarly, excuse me, of scholarly works and put them in the footnotes. So if you're reading and you really want to go, where did he get that from? You can go find out. And, And I think Christians have really been appreciating that so far. So book number two then there's going to be four total, but book, book number two, we have the um, once the our heroes, the the Roman, the Jew, and the Christian, um, and there's some changes that occur in their lives. But once they realize that this is really all about destruction of Jerusalem, they have to get the letter of Revelation to the Christians in Israel to to warn them the wrath of God is coming upon Israel and the temple. So get out. 
this is where Jesus, remember when Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation, yeah, run to the hills, run to the hills. That was what he was saying. Didn't, and so they had, the Christians had to escape and get out of there because the wrath of God was coming. That's, that's basically what it was. And didn't that actually happen? Like, weren't there like a couple hundred thousand that were saved that actually like left? Yes, there was. Uh, Eusebius, uh, the ch ancient church father, wrote about this and said that, that um, in fact, uh, Christians left and fled to the mountain city of Pella. Pella was uh, a little bit northeast across the Jordan from Jerusalem. It was in the area called the Decapolis. It was one of the cities of the Decapolis, which was Greek-dominated cities, which is very important because they, uh, when the Romans came in and you know, slaughtered a bunch of Jews in Israel. They destroyed a bunch of cities. They didn't tend to do so to the Greek cities. Um, uh. But also, also, there were, uh, civil war was going on in Israel. And so in cities, Greeks and Jews fought against each other even before the Romans got there. And they were slaughtering each other. Sometimes the Jews slaughtered thousands of Greeks. In the case of Pella, uh, the Greeks slaughtered most all the Jews such that the, the city was was almost in ruins. There was hardly anyone there. So there was plenty of room for the Christians to go and, you know, basically start their lives over, you know. That's super interesting. Now, isn't there – I want to do uh, – I want to try to like well, half our time on, on this and then the Nephilim. So we got about like 10 okay. minutes. Um, sure. Isn't there things though – isn't it – I can't remember the word for it, like a uh, partial prophecy or whatever, but part of it has been fulfilled, but there are some things that are yet to come because there's some things that like the, the two witnesses, um, the great battle of the armies of men, uh, Armageddon, you mean? Or... Yeah. And yeah. there, there, it seems there are a few things that wouldn't be explained by that. Yeah, well, look, there are different views in this camp called preterism. Uh, preterism is what I'm promoting, and it, what it what it is is it's a it's a Latin word that means the past. So it's basically saying, you know, the end times of the last days are in our past, rather than futurism, which believes that the end times are in the future. But within the preterist viewpoint, there is a lot of diversity of opinion, just like there is in the futurist camp, right? So there are some who will argue that all prophecy is all completely, all of it literally has been fulfilled in the past. Um, and then my camp believes it's called partial preterism. And yeah. what we believe is that most all of it has. So the book of Revelation is not about the second coming of Christ. I'll just say that right up front. I don't think it is. It's not about the physical return of Christ. It's about the judgment coming of Christ on Israel. All right. And it's very important to know that, that distinction because that means that there's still uh, that we still believe that there is a physical return of Christ in our future, a final judgment and a final physical resurrection. But it does not pre uh, it does not proceed, proceed or come after uh, <laughs> some future great tribulation of seven years with the rapture before and an antichrist and all this stuff. That stuff already occurred in the past. Um, and so just one day. Yeah, there's no, in other words, there's That's, no real signs. The only signs yeah. is we read about is in first uh, Corinthians 15, where it talks about how, um, before, you know, at the end, the end is basically Christ reigning until he has all enemies under his feet. 
And I think that that military language uh, uh, was used spiritually in the New Testament to indicate that Christ is king right now overall, but we don't see it working. We don't see it in history, but we see it working itself out. So the way that Christ conquers is not by the sword. He conquers by the gospel. So when mm. people get saved, that is them submitting to the authority and lordship of Christ, which is putting them under his feet, right? right. So in other words, as as Christian conversion grows on the earth, that is how the kingdom of God grows. And then sometime near the end, when most of the people have been, you know, conquered by Christ, most people have converted to Christ, which obviously has not happened yet, right? Right. Uh, but when at the point sometime <laughs> in the distant future, when most of the people have, then that's when Christ does return and hand the kingdom over to the Father. Um, so, so that's what I believe. But in terms of the revelation itself, it's very important to understand this notion of when I say judgment coming, because um, if we go back to uh, to Matthew twenty four, the classic verse is um, Jesus is talking about, you know, he's uh, Matthew twenty three. He says the Jews. You've killed the prophets, and now you're going to kill Messiah, so I'm going to destroy your temple. I'm not going to leave one stone left upon another, right? Then he describes all the events that will happen, including the tribulation and all this. And then he says, you know, uh, then the Son of Man will—the sign of the Son of Man—you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And most Christians assume, well, this is the second coming. It has to be. There's no other way you can interpret it. That's the hyperliteralism that I think is ruining the church because they're, they're, we're imposing our own view upon the text by reading it hyperliterally. But we need to understand through their language and through their poetry, actually, because this concept of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and glory has precedent in the Old, in the Old Testament. There's lots of places where God talks about how he is going to come in judgment on nations. He's going to come on the clouds with great power and glory. So let me just give you, a, you know, one quick example because this is one of the shockers to people. You know, um, dozen, a dozen times God says, "I'm coming on the clouds," and what what it usually describes, what it always describes, not usually, it always describes God using a pagan army of a nation to judge Israel or another nation. Let me give you a couple examples. Isaiah 19:1 is a prophecy that was fulfilled in 721 BC about um, the Ethiopian ruler Shabaka in alliance with the Assyrians and Sargon, okay? And basically, they the Assyrians came and destroyed Egypt. And here's what Isaiah says, the oracle concerning Egypt, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. So the Lord's coming to judge Egypt, what actually occurred was the Assyrians came and destroyed it. So you right. see what he's saying is the Lord comes in. Does the Lord, does Yahweh literally surf in on a cumulus nimbus cloud? No. no. The, when, a, when a pagan nation comes to destroy another nation, that's God judging them by coming on the clouds. This happens over and over all over the Old Testament. I could give you numerous passages. I'll just do another quick one. In Jeremiah 4, 13, God describes the judgment of Babylon coming, the Babylonian armies coming to destroy Israel. When they, when they destroyed the first temple in 586 BC, he says, behold, Yahweh comes like the clouds, his chariots are the whirlwind, and his horses are swift like eagles. 
warn the nations he is coming to Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a distant land. That's the Babylonians. So again, every time God judges a nation or a city, he is described uh, by using a pagan army. He describes it as God coming on the clouds. So now when you go back to Matthew 24 and you realize, wait a minute, in AD 70, the Roman armies came and destroyed Jerusalem for, and, and God said that he would do, send them because they rejected Messiah. So he, he said he would come and destroy them. And that's exactly what we see happening. And that's why when Jesus says, you'll see the Son of Man coming on clouds with power and glory, he's saying these Roman armies are uh, destroying the Jerusalem is the vindication that I am the Messiah you rejected. I am coming on the clouds to judge you. So it, it, this is a metaphorical, poetic way of saying Jesus is judging those who rejected him. And that's the that's the main is that's the main purpose I think also of the whole book of Revelation. It's not to look into the distant future, it's to look into the uh, immediate future that was the wrapping of the of the old covenant, the 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 divorce of Israel, God's execution of Israel as a unfaithful harlot and him marrying the new bride, which is the body of Christ. That's all the new covenant. Wow, and that's yeah. the story that I'm trying to tell in my Chronicles of the Apocalypse, but to show it through an entertaining with action, romance, battles, and all that kind of stuff, but also to show how I think it fulfills these scriptural passages through their context, not ours. That's good. That's a perfect uh, transition point. So <coughs> on to uh, angels mating with women. So, <laughs> so I recently, uh, I guess it was four years, five years ago, something, um, came across then, and I, I'm like a, a student of mythology, uh, Joseph Campbell and, and all that stuff, and when, and I was into conspiracies back in my, uh, less believer days, and, uh, so when I just got my big problem with conspiracies and all and all that sort of stuff was always like, well, how does this fit in if if the Bible is true? How does this fit in with God? Why would what motivation would these people have and all that sort of stuff? And when I came across this, it sort of became the the uh, skeleton key that unlocked it. I, I see it in everything in, in the Egyptian pantheon, the Greek, the Babylonian. It all every myth just starts to make sense and I'm a firm believer in myths don't just spawn from nowhere they come from and there's an original truth yep. somewhere at the bottom of all of them and I it, this one just happens to make the most sense yep um so I guess man what do you even start on that so well I, I was gonna say to respond to that that's what I wrote uh, in my book um God against the gods I explained that that very thing that God redeems p the pagan imagination. What I mean by that is um, what you just said, which is that you see all these commonalities and the, the liberal world or the secular world sees all these commonalities and they call it comparative religions, right? Mm -hmm. and, you know, you can go to university and be taught this. And they therefore think that everyone cheats and plagiarizes and, and you know, if religions evolve from each other as if, you know, as if they're just cheating and borrowing and plagiarizing, but I don't think that's the case at all. I think all you see them that they are they there is some cross influence, but they're using no, common notions and ideas and imagery and poetry 
to express their own theology in different ways. So for instance, you've got this creature, this, the multiple-headed sea dragon, Leviathan, who shows up in the Bible. And if you do a study on that, and I've written a free paper on that on my website, people can get it if they want on Leviathan. But Leviathan basically is a symbol. It's not literal. It's a symbolic uh, yeah, I, I was always sim- taught it was a giant crocodile. Yeah, it's a giant crocodile or a dinosaur or something like that. No, no, no. If you study it, it has multiple heads because that's what it says in Psalm 74. And uh, and it's a sea dragon. And basically it represents chaos. And all the pagan religions, including Israel, said that their God conquers the sea dragon and drinks up the sea or drinks up the rivers, that kind of thing. It's all part of describing their God creating the covenant, covenanted order by pushing back the chaos. It's order versus chaos. You destroy the sea dragon of chaos to create your covenant order. And that's what happens, for example, in Psalm 74, where it describes God's describing crossing the Red Sea, and he's going to establish his covenant, and he describes it as crushing the heads of, sea, of, of Leviathan. What? Mm-hmm. Does yeah. that just mean, oh, God's a... You know, like God's so powerful, he's crushing the heads of sea monsters. No, no, it's a very common poetic metaphor and not intended to be taken literally. And that, but here's the thing Canaan had a, a Leviathan as well. And guess what they called it? Leviathan. And it had seven heads. <laughs> you know, you've got Tiamat, the sea dragon yeah. of Babylonia. So there, but, but, but it's done polemically, which means it's not that Jews are going, well, I have no creativity at all. I'm just going to steal. I'm just going to use their image. And, and that's what I believe. No, they're using the image and investing it with their own meaning. Just, just like today as a Christian, if I write a vampire story, that's an essentially pagan, you know, right? Pagan sure. monster. I write a vampire story, but I will spin it and invest it with my meaning. And my theology rather than what other people might invest it with, right? So people use a common cognitive uh, language, a common, uh, you know, uh, social social intercourse, you know, images, um, uh, memes, this kind of stuff. Yeah. And they invest it with their own meaning. And that's what I think is going on. And I think it it's important to understand that because liberalism tries to find those connections and then, and then say, see, they're all just – Plagiarizing, plagiarizing each other, but no, it's much more complex than that. Now, with so, but do you believe like the the antediluvian Nephilim story happened, as it is like described in Enoch? Let's say <sighs> that's a good question. I see, um, my, I guess where I'm starting from, and granted, it's because I enjoy I would like this to be true I enjoy yes. you know it's more exciting yes uh, me too it does kind of I I would say I believe I have no problem with the su- supernatural aspects of the Bible that's just how I'm an artistic mind yeah uh it also would make sense to me um and that is what this would have been the original event that spawned the myths that's sure. kind of where I'm at but and and that's and that's how I see it. But I also think there are some possibilities that it is also polemical in some way because it, it clearly is polemical because the um, uh, uh, but there's this there's a scholarly paper paper if you um, f- go to Michael Heiser's website yeah or actually I've got it on my website on Godawa.com if you go to Chronicles of the Nephilim um, 
there's a I have a scholarly articles section, and there's an article by Anus A N U S, and he talks about how. Uh, that that the whole Nephilim um, and sons of God thing might be a um, might be a Hebrew uh, polemic against the typical Babylonian notion of the Apkalu wise sages and such. So I, I believe that there might be some merit to that. But yeah, basically, I do believe. You know what? This this makes sense, but it's it is rooted in a polemic because when mean, meaning they're they're you know the writers trying to cast these people in as evil because the Nephilim show up later. They, they start in Genesis six before the flood. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, it says that, you know, Nephilim were on the earth in those days and they were the fruit of the, these angelic divine sons of God mating with daughters of men. And they were monstrous and evil. And that's partly why God, uh, sent the flood. See, but then they, the word Nephilim doesn't show up until the Jews under Joshua are, um, crossing the Jordan to enter into the promised land and take it over. And God says it's filled with the Anakim who come from the Nephilim. And there's all these giant tribes, basically. And they're linking them to those original Nephilim, which is justifying why they need to be destroyed. Uh, not all of the tribes of Canaan, by the way, but some of them. And they go, and Joshua, in the book of Joshua, he goes out of his way to say that Joshua was literally. Uh, hunting down these tribes of giants that had their connection to the Nephilim. And I, but I think it's important for us to understand, because I just got this just the other day, some guys, you know, Facebooking, you know, this is ridiculous. There are no giants. Show me one giant, you know, one bones of giant, just one, you know, and that's and my, I, that's my co-host, which is why I was like, <laughs> what well. he said, he wrote that. No, 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 no. Oh, he My says co-host that too. Is a, he, says is, he thinks I'm ridiculous. Right. So. so, but here's the point. The problem is, is we we have all these words that have that have are are are, are uh, have baggage, and the word giant. You know, when you hear the word giant, what do you think of? B five fo foam. Yeah, we think of Jack and the Beanstalk. We think yep. of twenty foot, thirty foot giants of fairy tales. But that's not what the word means in the ancient days. As a matter of fact, a basketball player, a man of seven foot feet tall, would be called a giant. And in fact, the tallest, uh, the tallest dimension of a giant in the Bible is Goliath. And there's another giant too that's like seven King and a half. Og. No, um, King Og. That's a that's another issue. But there's Goliath is described as either nine foot six or possibly. Uh, six foot nine. There's there's some possibility that that yeah. might be what it is, and then there's another giant that's like seven and a half feet. And my point is is that that to you know when people of that day were like five foot five on the average, that's what they're saying is giants, not twenty foot and stuff. That's ridiculous. See, so so then you think that they linked that to this myth, basically, like saying these giant people surely they are this evil race. Yeah, and I I believe that they are connected because I believe what the Bible says, you know. Right. But but how does that look and what how does that play out? I'm not sure. But I it does clearly seem to me that the Old Testament, whenever it talks about these tribes of Anakim, Rephaim, Emim, uh, and Nephilim, and there's a couple others, uh, Zamzumim, whenever it describes these tribes, it says that they are of great height, 
height, of tall height, like the cedars of Lebanon. Now, again, that's hyperbole. They're just saying they're tall yeah. people. Like, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. You know, that that's hyperbole. That's not literal. Because, again... You know, if you, if you know, if you or I were to stand before uh, a team of basketball players, we would say that they're like a bunch of trees, right? Yeah. So oh, yeah. you know, that's all. That's all. But that's but there still is some kind of weird connection there, and I don't really know how it fully plays itself out. But I do take it, um, I do take it at relatively face value, in the sense that it does indicate that. This is uh, angels having sex with humans, and that is very offensive to my modern scientific theology, right? And I admit that it's it does sound very mythological, but I do think it's basically saying that because if you do the study on it, there are yeah, different me, theories. Me yeah, there are different theories that you know. Oh, this is just symbolic of um, dynastic kings or the righteous line of Seth, and you know we won't rehearse all those. Get my book. When giants were upon the earth, and I, you... I, I just ordered that today. Oh, okay. So, and, <laughs> and and your audience, I'm telling them, get the book because I walk through all the ob, ops, the uh, objections. Uh, objections to to this view, the supernatural view, as we will call it. And and you you mentioned the book of Enoch, and I do I do believe I don't believe that the book of Enoch is scripture, and I don't believe it's all accurate. And uh, do you know but... the history of it? Like, how was it treated? What did were the Jews learned in it? Did they know about it? Was it yes. like biblical yeah. fan fiction? Yes, and as a matter of fact, I've written a paper on it and a booklet on Amazon you can get called um, the Book of Enoch, uh, uh, heresy, scripture, heresy, or what? And um, basically, here's the problem: is it, while it's not scripture, a thorough study will reveal the fact that the New Testament writers were heavily influenced by it. Not only just just does Jude quote from the book of Enoch when he says God will come with 10,000 of his holy ones, right? But the the whole outline of Jude deals with the content of the book of Enoch. And there are multiple quotations or allusions to Enoch throughout all the New Testament. There's like a there's whole articles written that will show you dozens of things that were drawn from the book of Enoch that those authors drew from. My conclusion then is rather than dismissing the book of Enoch as modern evangelicals have done for decades is almost like it it was never here right it's almost like it's just ludicrous fantasy we must respect it why because the bible writers respected it therefore we must respect it we don't have to accept it as scripture but we must respect it and the thing is the book of first enoch is where it does tell about these tales of these giants very a lot a little bit more extrapolation than Genesis six. It talks about them, you know, have the gigantomachy and and eating cannibalizing people and and it goes into a sort of an expanded version of Genesis six. And I do believe that first Enoch is more of a mythical expansion, but I still think it's rooted in some truth because otherwise the New Testament writers would not have quoted it. So yeah, that's how true. I approach it. And I think more Christians these days are affording the book more respect. They're starting to wake up and realize we can't be dismissing these things just because they're not the Bible. Yeah. yeah. Very true. Especially if the Bible quotes it yeah. and paraphrases from it. I mean, there are, if you look at the book, I think it's second Peter, it literally follows, re there are references in the book of second Peter that are clearly, um, um, 
metaphorical references to the book of Enoch. So uh, again, get my study, the book of Enoch, and you'll see all some of those connections that will blow your mind. And now where I will leave it is in where the conspirators will pick it up is their involvement like in present day whatever um i i guess where i would would leave it is the enoch explanation of demons that it's that's where essentially where demons came from yeah yeah uh but as far as like being around today i'm totally fine with that not being the case yeah now there are a lot of christians who are into end time stuff and they believe that as it was in the days of Noah, yeah, they harp on angels that. Were, where angels were mating, that, so it will be in the days of, of the Son of Man. And again, they think that's in our future, but I think what that references to what happened in the past. And I think that if you if you look up that passage, it has nothing to do with with Nephilim. Um, in fact, let's do it real quickly because I think it it comes up a lot. It's Matthew twenty four. Verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, for as it were in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Which I argue the coming, Jesus came on the clouds in AD 70. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, so they say, as it was in the days of Noah, and what was happening in Noah? Days of Noah, angels were mating with humans. Uh-uh, that's not what the text says. The text is referring to the fact that people were doing happen. normal things. It says they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. That's what you do. Is they're living their normal lives and ignoring it. So when they say marrying and giving in marriage, they're not talking about angels marrying humans. They're just talking about mm. normal life. They're obsessed or they're just caught up in normal life. And so it's going to catch them by surprise. That's all that... Jesus, that when you when he, when Jesus makes a, um, a tells a parable or makes a connection, you can't go beyond the point of what he's he's making and draw other conclusions. Well, what else was going on in Noah's day? Well, they had all this going on. You know, that's ridiculous. That's not what it means. So yeah, I don't, I do not believe there's any future cloning of Nephilim or anything like that. I because as a matter of fact, biblically speaking. You hear nothing else about giants after the time of David, and because David was the Messiah King, he was the anointed Messiah King, and so, he, and, and of course, he's the symbol of which Messiah to come would be. But he represented the final, um, you know, the final uh, 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 cleansing of the land from these polluted uh, uh, races. Well- and which is why he doesn't just destroy Goliath, he wipes out all the Rephaim. If you read the story yeah. of David, he, he finishes is, them all off. That's the the biggest, one of the big arguments I hear against uh, the current trend of hating on the Bible is, well, how can, I don't want to be, believe in a God that would order the slaughter of these people, and that, that is one thing that does explain that, if, if yeah. this were a polluted bloodline, or, or however you want to put it, it that does make it a little more easy to swallow. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And, and, um, the problem is, you know, that, uh, well, there's, there's a lot of problems with the modern day skepticism, but, um, but uh, about that too, um, the interesting thing is, is you hear nothing more about giants after that, but you do hear when Messiah comes into the land in the gospels, all of a sudden 
there's demonic activity like like never before, quite literally. The Old Testament does not talk about demon possession. There's maybe that's one or two, maybe true. maybe Saul was demon possessed, but basically that's it. There's no there's no but all of a sudden when Messiah comes, there's these demonic possessions all over the place. Why? Why? Well, one of the biggest problems is that I think I do think that the Book of Enoch sheds light on this issue of demons that has really helped me. We we Christians tend to have a we assume our definition of demons based on medieval, basically medieval fairy tales and, and stories of what demons are. We, when you say, what's a demon? Demon's a fallen angel, right? Right. Well, no, biblically, that's not true because demons are disembodied spirits looking for uh, bodies. But fallen angels are not disembodied. They act, angels have flesh, right? Because when the angels visited Abraham, what did they do? They ate food. Yeah. When the angels had sex <laughs> before the flood, those were bodies. You can't, you, if you're a disembodied spirit, you can't create sperm, right, to create uh, progeny. Yeah. So the point here, now I would, I would agree that the bodies of angels are transdimensional, right, because they appear and don't appear and stuff. So their heavenly flesh, which is not the same as human flesh, I don't, I don't know, other than. They have a kind of heavenly flesh that can go between worlds, between heaven and earth, right? But right. it still is a literal flesh. So a fallen angel is not a disembodied spirit. So what are demons? They're just evil spirits. Where do they come from? There's yep. no biblical description at all. But the Enoch description, which is demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim. Now, go with me on this. And this makes sense to me now because for theological and well as well as a, a logical scientific reason, if this crazy thing is possible uh, that angels can mate with humans, then their their progeny, the Nephilim, are hybrid heavenly earthly creature, aren't they? Like uh, when a, hu a human is an earthly creature, when we die, our spirit goes to Haiti or you know, after Christ came, maybe it's either go to either go to heaven or hell or whatever. Um, but heavenly creatures don't do that because they're already heavenly. So what happens when you have a creature that is both heavenly and earthly? It's, it's kind of a hybrid that is very confusing. Well, where would they go it, when they die? Do they go to heaven or hell? No, they roam the earth. And if 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 the Nephilim yeah. are these these hybrid creatures, and when they die. Their physical human, or not human, but their their earthly side dies. Where does their spiritual go? Because it does. It's 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 sort of that in between world. So it makes sense that they might be those spirits of the dead Nephilim. Theologically, what what is interesting is that would explain why there's such a focus on casting out demons in, in the ministry of Jesus. It's like it's not just this like he has power over the spirits. It's that's not all. That's not what's going on. What he's doing is that represents the final expulsion of the Nephilim from the Holy Land. Messiah himself, whereas Messiah David, Messiah King David, ex, you know, destroyed the physical giants, but those spirits were still around, and Messiah was supposed to come 
you know, Messiah was supposed to do everything, right? Bring in the new new covenant, the new world, the new age, uh, bring in, you know, forgiveness and reconciliation and peace and all this kind of stuff. Well, he brings that with the spiritual kingdom of God, but he also has to cleanse the Holy Land because that's what it was about, expelling the evil. And these Nephilim represent that connection back to the ancient evil, see? So that's what I think the purpose of what Christ was doing was cleansing the land because he was coming into it. Oh, that's good. I never never made that connection. So what were you saying? Uh, I was saying I never made that connection before. That's that's actually pretty pretty cool. Yeah, and to me, I I kind of gathered together from Heiser and some other things, and then I brought in my own unique sort of angle on that, which is what I just described to you. And um, again, to promote my books, <laughs> my my final book of my s- series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, is Jesus Triumphant, where I try to show this theological thing of what was happening with expelling the demons and Nephilim and all that. But that was the premise of my whole Chronicles of the Nephilim series was I wanted to retell there's eight volumes. It starts with Noah Primeval, Enoch Primordial, and it goes on and goes through um, uh, Gilgamesh, Caleb, Joshua, David, and Jesus, and Abraham as well. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to retell this storyline that I call the seed, the seed, uh, the war of the seed the seed of the serpent versus the seed of Eve. And the seed of the serpent is this Nephilim line, so to speak. But it's more than that. It's a it's a spiritual war, right? So I wanted to depict that, but I wanted to retell all the Bible stories where giants showed up because I think that it was much more a part of an underlying story thread uh, rather, than, uh, rather than at the top, it's more underneath. Uh, but it has theological ties to Messiah. And I found this, I thought this was so amazing when I w- discovered it reading Michael Heiser's work. Um, but I was so amazed by that. I thought this story has to be told because it hasn't been told before in this dramatic narrative way. And so I retell stories in the Bible where giants or watchers appear. And um, I try to be faithful to the biblical text, but I also add a spiritual supernatural element. What might it, what might the spiritual world look like if we could see it, you know? So there's some fiction in there, obviously, but I try to stay true, fill in between the lines, so to speak, and tell this storyline that begins with Enoch and Noah and ends with Jesus. And then my Chronicles of the Apocalypse is actually a sequel to that series because I continue the same notion of these watchers, these fallen, um, the true fallen angels, and their authority over the Gentile nations. What does that mean, and how does that play itself out when Christ comes and judges? Hmm. Very cool. Well, uh, where can people find all your stuff? Godawa.com. My name, G-O-D-A-W-A.com. I have a bunch of... I'm. Look, it's not a boring website. I made a very interesting website because I wanted to make, make it an experience for people, especially if you're curious and you're not sure, you want to know more. I, I give descriptions of the story, I, stories I even show, have pictures, I, I cast all my novels, you see pictures of the characters, I've got artwork, and I've got a lot of scholarly articles, if people are interested in, in you know, studying more of this to show the basis of what I've done. So, you know, everything's there if you want to learn a little bit more, and then all of my books are, are in Kindle, paperback, and audiobook at Amazon, so everything's at Amazon, you can go there to buy it, but... 
um, my website is a, is a great portal if you want to, to learn more. Copacetic. Take on a break. Yeah, I did a little. You know, I just I took a deep breath, and we're good. One, two, three. What's bothering me? Uh, four, five, six. Uh, I forgot the rest of it. Um, Obviously, wasn't didn't work that well. Whatever. No, apparently not. Let's do this. Let's. Um, oh, I can't do it. All right, I'll use my phone. Let's try to call Passages Malibu. Uh, here see, we let, go. Let's get in the holiday spirit, and uh, let's see if they can if they can uh, accommodate me during Christmas, and if they can cure me. Looking for a Christmas miracle. I want to speak to Pax Prentice. <clears throat> what should my drug of choice be? PCP. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. Seriously? Wow. We're on hold because of the hundreds of admission inquiries we receive every day, and each caller, including you, is treated as special. I'm Chris Prentice, <laughs> co-founder of Passages, along with. Thanks for calling. We think you're here. This is Jane. Can I help you? Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that. Addiction Care Center. Oh, hey, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Oh, I've been better. Okay, how can I help you? I am trying to get cured of addiction. Okay, do you want to come to our property? Come to the property? What's What's your first name? Leonard. Leonard? Okay, give me one second. I'm Chester, I'm one of our intake specialists. Thank get you some information see if it's a good fit for you. Thank you. Not a problem. We won't want it. You're on hold because of the hundreds of admission uh, <laughs> inquiries we receive every day. And each caller, including you, is treated as special. I'm, I'm be... Chris Prentice, co-founder of... <laughs> tell your, tell your name is Roscoe Dankshot. Roscoe Dankshot? Yeah. <laughs> Passages is rated the number one center in the world. I'm going to switch voices. 
the Joint Commission on the Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations. Dude, I could be dying right now. The <laughs> highest rating in America for addiction treatment centers. Only 6% of all treatment centers have achieved that rating. We are not a 12-step program. That means we do not believe that alcoholism, addiction, or diseases. Hi, Leonard. This is Tanya. How are you? Uh, I've been better, Tanya. What can I help you with today? Uh, well, I would really like to be cured of my addiction. What is it that you're using? Angel dust. Angel dust, okay. PCP. Have you ever done any treatment before? I've been to all of them. I've been to about 15. If I have to. Okay. Do you have any specific questions about our program that I can answer for you? Well, how how does the cure work? Is it a pill? Do well, so what? Do y'all use the the twelve steps? No. Wow. They're super smart. Yeah, they they must get that shit a lot. Damn. She said she said PCP and she started laughing. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? What like what if I actually Yeah, like for real. <laughs> I guess uh, and my Freaking Pharaoh was playing with a can. Sorry I know, about that. I was wondering what that was. Yeah, dude. Gosh, dude. A hole. I mean, I guess my voice kind of. Uh, I did sound very uh, mocking. I think. I don't know. I yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. So. I can't believe in their recording they say like we don't believe in the twelve steps. Yeah. Yeah. You think yeah. they've got my number like on? Like I feel like I I wanted a second not right now but I want a second run at that. You can we can just can we can we just star six seven next time? Does that work anymore? Yeah, it still works. I think they'll definitely know something's up <laughs> from a fucking block number. What a bitch! Like what 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 if what if? I guess they just don't even fucking care. I know. Yeah. What I mean, we come with all sorts of stuff with us. You know what I mean? I yeah, mean, you dude. Know. Like. What if you were just seeing how they would react to that and be like, okay, they're cool, I'll go to treatment, you know? Wow. Fuck that place. I know, I wanted a little more out of that, too. <laughs> is this what a jerk, dude. I mean, I feel like somebody, I feel like that'd be I a, feel like that's a know? legit question. I think that's a legit question. I, I think mean, that's a legit question for an addict, you know, to ask. I, I'm trying to take the cure, bro. I'm trying to get yeah. cured by Christmas. You, yeah. you claim... To have the fucking cure. Yeah, give me the cure. I'm Ooh. You know how I said I was I was calmed down again? <laughs> That's gone. Out the window. That's oh, what a jerk, man. Um, that place. Um I've heard some things, some interesting things about that place. I uh I guess I yeah, I can't really go into it though. Why? Uh just psychology stuff oh okay all right that's fine well we can move on so 
Um, I feel like I've been like, have I been an asshole this whole episode? Um, I think we've both been relatively irritable. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, how, well, this is just a lesson that we're human folks. I guess. Of course. Well, I'm going to, all right. Well, I'm going to end this with some, I don't know if you in your good days and our bad days, you know. That's true. I need to quit. That's my people pleasing. Oh my yeah, god! Fuck. If my ferret. Oh, just... so, so Jed, before you so, before you close up, what do you know anything about Kava? I was at so I was at this party. Yes. And this guy was like, "Hey, man, you know, I know you don't drink, but like, um, he's like, you know, maybe we can go. They got a Kava bar downtown. We could go to. I'm like, yeah, I don't, you know, sure, you know, I don't really." I mean, I don't really know what it does. I know it's, I don't think it's an archive, but like, I'm not going to go to like an Advil bar. You know what I mean? Just doesn't, yeah, it's, I don't it's, really... it's close. I mean, it's a uh, Kava Kava. I've thought about trying it and taking it. I mean, it's, uh, if you went to a Kava bar, I imagine they have some pretty potent shit. Mm. Um, so it's probably a little questionable. Like, it, yeah. it would probably make you feel good. Yeah, that's not good for me. I mean, no. what does it what does it do? It's a it's a plant. Oh, okay. All right, kava kava extract comes from the roots of the kava kava plant, also known as Piper methysticum. Uh, mm-hmm. This plant, which grows in the Western Pacific, has been used for centuries for recreational purposes. Mm-hmm. Um. Excuse me. In Fiji, official ceremonies still feature kava beverages as a welcoming gesture. It is consumed as a social beverage similar to the cultural role that wine plays in the West. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, that's no bueno. Yeah, kava is used in beverages or other forms to produce feelings of increased calmness. When enough is taken, it can produce an effect that is described as a kava kava high. This high is thought to be similar to the effects of alcohol, but there are important differences. Um... <clears throat> yeah so mm. no I'd say no yeah yeah that's a big negative yeah <laughs> yeah at least you uh, you know yeah it definitely has recreational use so that's like that's the rule of thumb for addicts is like you, whatever substance you're thinking about just google the substance and then recreational use <laughs> and then right, and right. if 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 there's a bunch of people like this shit is awesome, this shit is like, awesome, like, no good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, have you been hearing the today I learned segments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. All right. So I'm gonna end with uh some happy today I learns. Um. This one is just cool. Wow, dude. My ferrets are just like really chewing on every noisy thing they can find. Honey badger don't care. Good grief. So, uh, the company 3M, they make tape. You know what, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, 3M. Mm-hmm. So, a 3M adhesive tape plant, like a factory, accidentally created a force field of static electricity that was strong enough to prevent humans from passing through. A, pierce, a, a person near this, quote, wall was unable to turn and so had to walk backwards to retreat from it. What? Isn't that nuts, dude? That's crazy. Like they like they walked into it, got like uh-huh. stuck, so they couldn't turn 
around, so they had to walk backwards. How does one create such a force field? Because I guess because like. <laughs> how does one create such a force field because like, I, I must Magneto, have the power you know? like, is that uh, I'm guessing here? it's just it's just because like you know sometimes when you peel something it'll create a, uh, a static I guess if you do oh, that on a fucking okay. industrial level uh, oh it's just like kind of ripples and creates. I guess that's who knows man that's pretty awesome uh, and the last one uh, why did pirates wear earrings they look dope. Uh, I mean, that's acceptable. Uh, <laughs> uh, they wore them to pay for their funerals. That's where the they would oh, wow. put gold in their ears so that someone else, some famous, uh, some like American did that too in case he died on foreign soil. But yeah, uh, they would wear gold so that they could pay for their funerals wherever they went down. Now they just carry around bitcoins. Yeah, dude, my cryptocurrency portfolio is doing pretty well. It's nice. Yeah. All right, man. Well, that's that. It's been real. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Look, in this time of love and joy, let's remember me just yelling and prank calling a rehab and getting hung up and getting hung up on. Wow, that's a rough Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>